Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Maria Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have a brand new episode with you. And yes, we have more men for the month. It's a lot of men. It's raining men. Welcome, Rob Eshman. Dr. Eshman is a writer, educator, filmmaker, and scholar from Chicago. My hometown, Chi-Town. He is a proud product of the Chicago Public Schools and receives his PhD from the University of Chicago in 2017. He writes on educational inequality, community violence, racism, social media, and youth well-being. His research seeks to uncover individual, group, and intuitional level barriers to racial and economic equity. And he pays special attention to the heroic efforts everyday people make to combat those barriers. Dr. Eshman has co-written and directed several short films for the 48-hour film project film festival and has written in workshop fiction since his days as a graduate student. Make sure to check out Dr. Eshman's first book, When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. It is an engaging and comprehensive exploration of the ways technology, online communication are changing how we experience, understand, and respond to racism, both online and in person. You can buy it now from Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or wherever books are sold. Also, welcome my funny friend. It's his first time also on the show. It's been... I cannot believe it's his first time. I've known DC Benny forever. It's like my big brother in the comedy scene. DC Benny, his storytelling style of comedy has delighted audiences over 35 years as a New York-based performer. His third appearance on NBC's Showtime at the Apollo has over 18 million YouTube views. He has four stand-up specials, including Comedy Central Presents, Dry Bar. He was a season finalist on both seasons two and eight of NBC's last comic standing. He's been featured in John Singleton's Illegal Tinder, Freedom Land with Samuel Jackson and Julianne Moore, Love Walked In with Terrence Stamp, Where God Left His Shoes with John Leguizamo, and he recurred on the soap opera As the World Turns. He was a cast member on ABC's Supermarket Sweep with Leslie Jones and currently plays Bart on Amy Schumer's series Life and Beth on Hulu. He lives in Long Island, Northfolk, where he teaches comedic storytelling and runs a beach rental business. And let me tell you, I've been there. You want to check it out. He runs that with his wife, BungalowOutEast.com. You can hear us on Google Podcasts now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. That's important. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for friends like us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail, Instagram, is Friends Like Us Podcast and Twitter is Friends Like Us Tint. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. It's because of you we keep going. And now for our golden friends, you have the option to watch our recordings live backstage. Go to Patreon backslash Friends Like Us and be golden. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Go to marinafranklin.com. Weekly, that's every Saturday on my YouTube channel, I go live with my friends Evelyn Frick and that wacky Dave Juskow. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews and we have surprise guest friends. Stop by like this week we had DJ Eric Prince. Sometimes we even offer free stuff like tickets to comedy shows. With friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Tell a friend you know to check us out. Stay safe. Wash those dirty little hands. Be nice. And Black Lives Matter.
have two men for the month. It's a heavy flow. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Rob Eshman. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. And DC Benny. Oh, my God. It's his first time. <laughs> Comedian extraordinary. He has a special on YouTube. Welcome. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> so welcome. I want to thank you both for joining me today. This is just going to be a really interesting episode where we're talking about social media, how it can help and how it can be very uh, harmful too, and what ways what we can do to really protect ourselves. So Rob, this is your first time meeting me meeting DC. I've known DC for a long time as an, he's just so you know, DC Benny is one of the veterans of com of comedy in New York City. Okay, I met him as a young comic when I was just at the Boston Comedy Club trying to get on stage. And DC was one of those leather wearing <laughs> <laughs> leather jacket wearing comedians that you were like, I want to be as cool as him. And he's a storyteller extraordinaire. He even teaches how to tell stories. They just put a special out on YouTube. But let's go into the fact that you promoted your own special on YouTube. How exciting and tell us all about that. Uh, okay, well, you know, that special is actually from an album that was two albums back. And I didn't know these guys, the record label taped this footage and we just kind of stumbled across it. And I was like, hey, well, why don't we cut it together? Do it as a special and uh, and we'll just put it, and they kind of just gave it to me. And so I put it on my YouTube channel and that was kind of it. I don't, you know, Netflix isn't banging on my door <laughs> to, 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 to buy it. Uh, so I, I just put it on there and um, that's kind of, those are kind of the basics, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think 10 funny stories and we shot it in, um, uh, in the village at, uh, the fat black pussycat, which is, uh, you know, subsidiary of the comedy seller and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's very low budget. It's a very low budget thing, but it's, it's kind of bare bones. It's like this stuff I like, you know, it's just you and the audience in a box and no frills. And that's kind of what it is. And thanks for, you know, giving it a shout out. I appreciate it. You know, and is your channel name DC yeah, Benny? on YouTube on YouTube? Yeah. So it's live at the fat black. Um, there's another one on Bill Burr's channel called the drift in predicaments on his, uh, all things comedy channel. So you can go between those two, but this is the most kind of recent one that's on my channel. Yeah. Check it out and put a little comment there and, uh, that's it, man. That's it. I, it's incredible. It's awesome. I'm so glad the, when I saw it, I was like, DC, we got to like promote this because YouTube really is like the new way for comedians to put specials out. They don't have to wait anymore for Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, the, the thing is, if if you're like me uh, and maybe a lot of people we know um, and you don't have this tremendous social media following and it's it's as you get older it gets harder to sort of stay in the the game with the networks and all that kind of stuff new to youtube is amazing it's very empowering you can put out what you want to put out how you want to put it out and you get that kind of it's it's a similar feeling to being on stage where you get that immediate gratification you know from the laughter and if this stuff works or if this stuff doesn't or whatever it's it's you put it out and you get that feedback and you're kind of 
it, it, it feels like you're in control of it. Nobody's telling you to censor. I remember doing a Comedy Central special and years back, and I had to chop so much stuff out of it. Um, and there was, a, there was actually a part where after we shot it, they were like, oh, hold on, everybody. Um, we're going to have him tell this joke again, but differently, and the whole audience has to fake laugh at it. <laughs> and we're going to use that. And it was the most bizarre. It was the most bizarre thing to have to recreate what they'd already heard. And everybody had to kind of laugh at it um, and then put that in there, you know, uh, but that's TV. So this is, uh, you know, it's nice to just be able to put a kind of uncensored uh, thing out there that is just your, your kind of pure work uh, with nobody's nobody has any say in it. So I, I like that, you know. I like that aspect of it. That's awesome. So I see you shaking your head, Rob, <laughs> when you hear DC talking about this. Well, man, look, he's opening my eyes. I had no idea that um, on some of these comedy specials that I see on, you know, on TV or online that they, you have fake laughter going on. Um, so, I, and so I, I think that that's, that's news for me. And I love the idea of being able to bypass the, the people who typically make the decisions and, you know, and, and, um, and, and kind of limit, you know, what, what is seen. And so I think, you know, that's actually right. Like I know we're not talking about my book yet, but that's something that I talk a lot about in my book is how social media can bypass institutional gatekeepers and, and allow the people to get straight to um, the audience and, and, and other folks who, who are interested in, in getting involved in activism. Yes. I read your book, like not the whole, well, I read an excerpt about your first experience with the internet. Can you take us through that and and why you decided to write the book again? Yeah, yeah. So the name of the book is When the Hood Comes Off, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. It's a book about how online communication or social media are changing the way that we experience, understand, and respond to racism. Um, and so for me, I think that... that um, I wanted to write this book because, you know, leading theories on race and racism in the U.S. like to talk about how racism has changed and become more subtle in the years since the civil rights movement, um, where, you know, it's illegal to, to discriminate, right? Racism will get you in trouble with, with HR. And so most of us, most folks of color experience racism through more subtle means like microaggressions. But I just thought that that was inconsistent with some of my own experiences uh, on the internet where explicit racism seemed to be more the norm in some spaces. And so, right. I do, I opened the book with telling a story about the first time I was called the N word, uh, maliciously, um, was playing video games online and how that just kind of, you know, led to me to have a question of like, what does racism online tell us about racism in the real world? And, you know, to, to see how often it happened online playing this video game that I, played, you know, with white friends too on my college campus. It made me question, are some of my white friends who are cool with me every day talking like this when they're wearing a headset, when they have an anonymous username, when there's no, you know, consequences for for them using that type of language. Yeah, when I read that, I thought immediately, I'm a gamer, believe it or not, as you can tell from my headset. <laughs> this is my gaming headset. When I'm playing Fortnite, I've been tricked into playing Fortnite. I'm somewhat, a, I am addicted to it. Uh, it was, it happened during the pandemic. I used to play like, you know, Call of Duty and Fallout and 
and now I'm playing Fortnite, which seems like a regression. But anyway, um, <laughs> when I'm playing Fortnite, I have noticed, like, because my character is black. And, I, you know, Fortnite gives you all these options of different color characters and stuff. And there was a part of me that was like, maybe I shouldn't be a black character because they're going to be hacking at me. You have that little moment before the game starts where you're in like a foyer like you're waiting and you can tell like what they like start hacking at my head and so i'm like hey and i'm just i've i have noticed i'm like i feel like i'm being attacked because i'm a black woman uh, in this mm. game yeah that's interesting so there is there is research that shows that when you use black avatars people treat you differently in game and that research is usually in games where it's like you have to make your character. So it's like you are choosing black skin, you're choosing your features and your hairstyle and whatnot. Um, Fortnite is a little different because most of the time, right, you don't make your own character. You're picking from like what they offer you, which I play Fortnite too. My kids got me into Fortnite and I, and I love it as well. <laughs> um, and then right, the latest I get, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say that I spend money to buy some of these characters, especially when a black character has come out. So I had they to They rarely come out too. Yeah, so I, you know, I got Miles Morales when he came out, so that's who I'm playing with right now. But I got Nick Fury, I got you know Blade, um, and so you know I have a I have a lot of fun um, in that game. But anyway, it, that it, that could that could be the case that they're attacking because of that. But then also it's a game where you know it's a little different where at, you know white people like Miles Morales too, and so when Miles Morales drops, it's not just black folks who are buying that skin. It's going to be every little kid who went to go see, you know, um, into the Spider-Verse and they're excited about, you know, this this character. So, I, you know, I haven't seen any research about that in Fortnite. I would not be surprised if you want. We could set up a little experiment. We go into 100 lobbies with Peter Parker versus Miles and see w whether you get hacked more when you're wearing the Miles get up. Definitely when you're wearing the um, black woman get up, I'll tell you. I mean, because you can enter where you can hear other people talking. I don't I usually uh -huh. play with just my friends, but there are random like people who can join your team. And you and you I, I just don't do it because I know uh -huh. like when I read that excerpt about how you went on. Can you can you tell them about that and what you were hearing and, and how you did not expect it? Yeah, yeah. So I had never played video games online before. Um, and I was playing at my cousin's house. And so we're playing this game Halo, which I played a lot on campus with friends, playing at my cousin's house, where, but now we're online and we weren't using the headset. And so I asked my cousins, I was like, yo, let's, put, let's plug in the headset. I want to like chat with the people around the world, whoever we're playing with. And they kind of looked at each other and they told me like, nah, man, we don't, we don't do that. And I asked them why. And they told me because every time they do, they get called the N-word. And this is just not something that was believable for me, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a black man growing up in Chicago in a neighborhood that's majority black and Latinx. And, you know, I, I knew what racism looked like. I knew what, what microaggressions were like, but nobody was calling me the N-word to my face. So it just seemed like something unreal. So I didn't believe them. Um, they told me to try it for myself. I put on the headset and, um, right, I was playing with the username Galactic Hair. So I put on the headset and I said, hey, what's up, guys? And I was, put, you know, I was trying to disguise my voice to make, right? Like, like I, I, I almost was, was um, kind of changing the way I speak so they would not know my racial identity from my voice. 
Um, and I'll never forget that the first words in response to me saying that were, your name should be Galactic N-Word. And so just from saying, what's up, that's, that's straight to what they went to. And so we right, ended up being, you know, I'm young, uh, I'm, you know, and I wasn't backing down. So it was just kind of a war of words while we're playing the game. Um, but it was right. It was an experience where I couldn't, I couldn't believe that it happened on time. And then I didn't believe that that was something that was the norm either. I was like, no, no, we just actually, we ran into some races, but that's not everybody out here. But then we played another game, same thing happened and another game, same thing happened. And so eventually just took the headset off and decided like, all right, this is not, you know, in order to have fun, we can't be, we can't have the headset on. We can't fully engage in the space. So it's like you and Fortnite, right? My kids play Fortnite. I cut off the setting for them to be able to talk to, to the public. They can chat with their friends. They can't chat with, 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 with you know, with everyone. Um, and so it's, it's something like Red Eye, I chose to not engage. And so that is, for me, right, this idea of, of racism being different online and how does that change us? How does that change how we think about race and racism? Um, but then, you know, I, I do want to say that, that in the book, it's not just about racism. It's also about resistance. And the most interesting part of my study, which where I talked to, you know, over 80 students in five different cities across the country. I have social media data over a decade looking at millions of tweets. And the most interesting part of what I found is the way that, that folks of color use technology to resist racism in new and unique ways. And not everybody is taking the headset off and saying no thank you to the space that other people, when they experience this ugliness, that they're also using digital tools to fight back in new and unexpected ways that are really changing um, power dynamics. I love that. I do want to ask DC, you're hearing this. Yeah. Do you ever, as a comedian, I know you experienced something on, we did last comic standing. Well, this reminds me. That was the first time. Uh, I, if I can yeah. jump in here, this reminds me. I have a clip on YouTube uh, called, and it's from an appearance, Showtime at the Apollo. And it's it's called somebody posted it as white boy rips the Apollo. OK. And the, the comments, the comments on that, there's like six thousand comments. I mean, you talk about the latent racism or whatever that that it, it, it unearths that whatever there's something about that clip that evokes. It's like these race wars in in the comments, you know, it's like, you know. I'm a wigger, uh, 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 you know, why is, how can white boy be okay to say, you know, in the, in, I mean, the, it's like, I had to stop looking at it. It was, it was disturbing. It was really disturbing the stuff that people were saying about the audience, about me, about what I was doing, about the interaction. You know, I was talking about, I was talking about in some capacity, racial stuff. But like that I was a sellout and this and that. I mean, it was, it's, I thought it was stuff that I just didn't even think really existed on a wider scale. It was kind of eye opening, you know, and how, and how when people have that anonymity, doctors talking about here, that it just, they, you know, it brings out the absolute worst. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like really not much has changed, you know, when you're, when you can be anonymous. So I don't know if that, just hearing that kind of sparks that memory of just like going going through those comments sometimes like wow where did where does all this come from like how did this this is supposed to be comedy this is supposed to be just entertainment and people it's it, i don't know it touched some kind of nerve between 
white and black people viewing it. And obviously not all, but there's it's a portion where it just it, it's hateful. It's really hateful to see the, this commentary. So I, I feel what you're saying. I don't know anything about video games. Like you guys are talking about this character and that character and everything. I'm old. You know, I know, uh, I know, uh, you know, asteroids and Galaga and stuff, <laughs> Pac-Man. But um, I feel what you're saying. It's just, it's interesting to hear it and how, you know, when you do some kind of social commentary, it can really find an Achilles tendon within within people who are kind of harboring really a lot of hostility, you know, sort of latent. I don't know if it's latent, but it's sitting there and maybe they don't verbalize it and it builds up. And then it's the, the you know, YouTube, the internet or whatever just becomes this conduit for stuff that you just can't believe, you know? So I don't know if that's obvious, but it, to me, it was, it was, it is eye opening that that shit is still out there, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it, I, I wouldn't say it's obvious, but I would say for a lot of internet users that, that they're familiar with those types of comment sections. So for you, it hits a little different where this is your content that they are responding to, where this is like a, a discussion, a hate-filled discussion that is, you know, is in direct response to things that, that you said or the context and, and right. So I could imagine that would be unnerving to kind of witness that war and your in your space. But I think that right for a lot of internet users who pay attention to news comment, right? Comments on online news, you know, articles, comments on other YouTube videos is that you have this, you have hate that, that can be even more random than when you're like talking about something that is race related on stage in an iconic black, you know, theater. Right. Um, and so I think that that's something that, that many internet users have, you know, we have to, kind of explain away or we had to learn to ignore i remember for a while when obama was president every any youtube video no matter what the content was somebody's gonna comment obama's a monkey and it's like right like what like what does obama got to do with this prank that's done that we're watching a video of? but it's like it's just this is a place where the trolls come out is to leave their hate in the comment sections um and so that's something that, that we kind of get used to as being just the the backdrop of the conversations on the internet is that there's always this hint of ugliness going on. Um, and one of the things, so in the, when the hood comes off, one of the case studies I have is an anonymous forum on a college campus, but you had to be a student to post on it. So for many students who had seen lots of comment sections, like you're describing where the ugliness is online and it's everywhere, but they think, Oh, this is the KKK. These are the people who live somewhere in Kentucky and this has nothing to do with me. But when they saw that, Oh no, now the students at my university are making the same comments that sound like they're being made by the Proud Boys on a YouTube on their YouTube channel, but it's coming from campus, and that really you know expanded their worldview, where they began to understand that racism is everywhere. Racism is not behind us, despite the fact that I am black and doing well and have lots of white friends. You know, knowing that you know that that that, that racism is still present and still powerful. Yeah. What well, What was interesting about this little piece, and then I'll. I don't want to take Marina's no, time keep, here. No, please. That, uh, no, no, this is important. I want you to talk. Uh, Go. <laughs> I don't want to talk. They hear me every week. <laughs> is that people actually researched me, like dug around in my background and found out, you know, like that I was Jewish and then like wrote stuff about, you know, should have put them in an oven and stuff. I mean, this is a this is a comedy clip, you know, and I'm like somebody went to great lengths to find this out uh, and, and um, 
you know, it, it to me, just just thinking about that, because I figure I, I feel like, you know, what you talked about up top is that, you know, it's 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 much more subtle now. It's like, you know, pops up in, in jar or something like that. It's just it's much more subtle now. And I was thinking about when I when I met my wife, who was black, which I talk about in that clip, not this particular thing. But when I went to her house downstairs, there was a gun rack and it was her grandfather's gun rack. And this day they, they were in Virginia and, you know, we were there and I was meeting, <laughs> I was meeting parents and everything. And I went downstairs. It was kind of a little tense or whatever. And I went downstairs and it was the gun rack and there was this piece of wood in the gun rack incongruously. There's gun, 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 old guns. And there's this piece of wood. And what it was, was a cross that had been burnt on their lawn being landowners in Virginia. Uh, her great grandmother used to keep a pistol on the nightstand and shoot at Klansmen. And this was a cross and it had a date uh, on a card. And it was like such a, for me to meet my wife's parents under these circumstances was like such a, I think about that way back you know, way back then. And then I think about this thing that's posted and, and people's commentary that a lot of that stuff, all that, those feelings really, they haven't gone there. They're very much just below the surface percolating. And this is just, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that you, you mention all this cause I'm not really, I don't really understand social media that well. I don't understand these, these games you guys are talking about or everything, but it's just the, the, the way that there's this, uh, there's this, like build up of negativity and this outlet for it where you can do that. And then you can be Joe Schmo likable doing everything by the book, you know, like a, like a kind of like a, a priest that molests kids or something. You know what I mean? Where you're, you're, it's like, you have this other, there's this other side of humanity that just hasn't gone anywhere. You're like, how much, how much intrinsically is that part of the human psyche? You know, how much, how much do we defeat that or have conquered that or moved on from that? Or how much is it really part of the human psyche when you can get away with saying shit anonymously that, you know, what comes out? So it's a really interesting study with it, that it's the kids at the school. It's not like, you know, hillbillies up in, a, in, a, in, in the woods or something like that. It's, it's, you know, people you know. So when you talk about that, I was going to ask you what data when I think of the, these trolls, I think of them as being young white male. Do you have data or do you know of data that says that tracks like who's making these comments? No, I don't have data that says who's making the racist comments. I think that, mm -hmm. that um, um, we sometimes assume that it's going to be young white males. Um, I, you're right. I, 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 I don't necessarily know who's behind. I think that when you have anonymous comments, they, right, it can be anyone. It can be right. And, and social media posts can really amplify messages. So it could be a small amount of people who are making a large amount of noise um, online. But I think part of, of the point that I try to make is that right, we never know someone's true hidden attitudes. And uh, right it, for me, it, it's less important to root out individual racists and to identify, okay, who are the people making these comments? And now we need to label them. They are racist and we need to punish them accordingly. And it's more about waking people up to the realities of racism. And right, because you don't have to hate black people and make 
racist comments in order to keep the racist system going. And that right. The, so the, the the point of us understanding how racism has become more subtle uh, is is to identify right how is racism continuing to work so efficiently in a society that has made racism um, you know illegal, right? Discrimination is illegal, and this is right. This whole I mean, right, we, we, the critical race theory has been kind of a buzzword in the news recently with all the laws trying to get anything related to race education out of public schools in Florida and other states. And all critical race theory is doing is trying to point out ways that our laws, our policies hide, you know, kind of uh, um, strategies for maintaining racial inequality. And so when we think about kind of the official definition of racism, it's not just prejudice. It's not just an idea or an ideology. Racism is an ideology that supports or legitimates racial inequality. And so you can have ideas about racial differences that support con- the continuation of racial inequality without being someone who comments like, oh, you know, I, I hate this, this group. I will write out, I, you know, whether it's anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-immigrant, right? That, that you don't have to verbalize that hate in order to be a part of the system that is continuing to, uh, you know, oppress people. Now, Musk threatens to sue researchers who found rise in hateful tweets. This is a recent ar- article by Scripps News, which is a new uh, news outlet that I, I found through the Bloomberg channel. Um, but the Center for Countering Digital Hate, a nonprofit that regularly publishes reports on hate speech, extremism, or harmful behavior on social media platforms, where they were threatened for legal action in their most recent report which found an increase in anti-LGBTQ hate speech as well as climate misinformation on X, which is formerly Twitter, the social media platform, since Elon Musk's purchase. Now, Alex Spiral, an attorney representing the social media site, wrote the center threatening legal action over the nonprofit's research, alleging that center's research intended to harm Twitter's business by driving advertisers away from the platform with incendiary. I have a hard time reading sometimes. The incendiary claims, citing when the report found the platform failed to remove neo-Nazi and the anti-LGBTQ. Content from verified users that violated the platform's rules. So basically, I, I don't understand how this attorney is saying that they're driving away ads by addressing these uh these hateful tweets on Twitter. Like this is setting a precedence that's gonna scare away researchers and to make sure that these platforms stay. Um, you know, unhateful. What's going on here? Yeah, yeah. You know, I I don't know what what's going on with Elon all the time. I think it seems like sometimes he threatens lawsuits, um, and ways to right. Like I think he's a master at kind of manipulating media attention. He's a master at at getting us to you know follow the things that he says, and part of that is just saying outlandish things. I don't know that there's going to be a strong case for suggesting that researchers who are who are doing objective research and publishing it are trying to take down the company. Um, I think that there was a suggestion in the article that that they were funded by Twitter competitors. And so if, I, if you're trying to prove that this is corporate espionage, 
that's one thing. But then this is an organization that has also um, been critical of Facebook or other platforms. And so I don't know that I don't know that this is the type of lawsuit that's going to stick. I also don't think it's going to scare researchers away. I feel like for, you know, scholars like us in academia, many of us see our jobs as being exposing, um, you know, problematic things, right? And, and whatever our fields are. And so I do not see social media research is slowing down because of a lawsuit like this. I see, more, you know, it, it, it's more likely for Twitter to try and make it harder for us to get access to its data. Is the more that they can make you know, its data a black box, then that's something that, that is harder for us to find these types of problems. But I don't think, either, right, I think that we're, you know, we're going to be, you know, the universities have our back in, in continuing to do research that, that uncovers injustice, whether it's in politics, whether it's in um, you know, from social media companies. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not so worried about the lawsuit in that sense, but I am worried about, um, again, cause Twitter has been a place for organizers, right? Um, right. Black Twitter is a space that has been bringing attention to injustices in ways that by right. I talked before, but right. This idea of YouTube and, and comedians, but you're able, we're able to bypass the media gatekeepers who decide when and where we're going to tell stories of anti-black violence and social media is the way that folks have, have gotten past those gatekeepers and, and, and the black folks are able to tell our own stories and bring attention to our own movements um, in powerful ways. And so it is a little bit scary when you get someone like Musk in charge of, of the platform for the, the, you know, right, the, the, the kind of the biggest hub of black activism in the past decade. Um, and then it, it just calls it the question whether we are going to continue to be able to use it in that way or whether they are going to be. Um, there are going to be changes made to the platform that specifically target the efforts of activists to to build community. Um, so that is something that I worry about more so than worrying about there being a lawsuit because you you you, you know you prove that there is racism happening on a particular social platform. Yeah, that black box. So to tr- yeah, because I always when I'm on TikTok, I don't know if DC if you're on. T- are you on TikTok? Sort of. I don't. I don't really put a lot into it, but, uh, uh, you know, it's I'm, I'm marginally there. I'm always concerned with TikTok because, and I, you know, it's, it's a company that I believe it's a, it's in China. Uh, and so I, it was just weird. Like I was noticing at a time I was like black influencers on TikTok. It always felt like you were being shadow banned. Or like the things you would put up were being scrutinized more closely. And like even like your appearance at times, like they seem to be, it just seemed, I don't know if it was my imagination, but do you have any like stories about TikTok and and how they, being that they're not like a United States company? Uh, Are you talking to me? Or uh, or the Uh, doc? Because I know that they're like, we just had... um, for example, we just had Tracy Lauren, who was on the podcast, and she does a lot of black history that did really well on TikTok. But then I also worry because it's not a it's not like a United States company. It's not like someone who rep, who looks like me company. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think the United States companies are someone who look like you company either. Right. <laughs> right, uh, right. <laughs> and so I don't know. Um, and so I don't know that I would, you know, that, that that may not be the driving force. I have heard stories of black creators talking about being shadow banned on TikTok. Um, I also know that, right, you have lots of black creators who will create a popular dance on TikTok, but then the, it's the white creators with more, a bigger following who profit off of 
doing that dance and kind of get the credit for it when really it's you know there's a black teenager who was behind it who 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 doesn't get the same name recognition. Um, so so I I think I, I have read a little bit and I've seen a little bit. I don't have TikTok myself, um, and and I think I see I end up seeing the TikToks two weeks later when they make their way to Instagram Reels. Um, so it's like I'm I'm a little bit late and uh, right when I notice a trend and I'll bring it up and my kids have seen it before I, you know and they say oh that's old dad that's that didn't just come out <laughs> so well you brought up a good point with kids online how does one how does you know I'm not a parent and DC you're not a parent we're both yeah. not parents by choice <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and a lot of times I see like social media and I and I see my sisters with their kids and I'm like I could not imagine what that has to be like to watch my nieces like I see them in their bedrooms on their phone I'm like who's watching what's going on how do you protect them it's hard it's hard um I think I talk about in the book how I like, I, you know, I'm someone who studies online abuse for a living and I still, my kids still find ways to, you know, get exposed to things that I wish that they hadn't gotten exposed to. Right. So I think I mentioned that on Fortnite, I changed the settings so they can't talk with people in the public, but I didn't realize on the Oculus VR headset, virtual reality headset that the default is that you're able to engage in public chats on some of these games. So my kids told me about some of the problematic things that they heard people saying through their VR headset. And I'm right. This is, I've never, I don't put on VR headsets to, to play games. I don't know how these settings work. And so I think for me, the most important thing is just having an open and honest relationship with them where they are comfortable telling me about things that they encounter. Um, because I think that no matter what parental protections you put in place, kids are going to find their way into online spaces and you know right you want them to be to right to know that that they do not have to be alone with, with the things that they encounter that they're not going to get in trouble when they come and talk to you about it and that right to that, that, that you're going to be on their side and, and finding a solution and so for me that right that my kids have phones um you know i do have like the shared apple situation where like, i have to approve apps that they get um, but you know, it's, it's funny cause yeah, my youngest who is 11, he asked to get the discord app and I said, no, you can't, you can't have the discord app. That's the right. That's, that's not to me a great space. And it turns out he was already using discord on a browser because he knew how to make an account without needing it to be an app. And so then I approved the app and now it's like, okay, well, right, this is already something you're doing with your friends. I'll approve it, but I'm approving it in the context of, I want to have conversations with you about what the groups are that you're in that are right. They're video game focused. They're with your friends and not some of the other things that are going on in discord, which would be inappropriate for an 11 year old. So that it's a situation of, uh, of, I can't, I can't control everything and I don't try to control everything. And I more just want to like, the thing I can control is do I have a good relationship with them where they want to talk to me? They want to tell me about the things that they're, you know, that they're encountering. It, it's a whole lot more parenting you have to do now. It's I can't imagine what that's like. That it's a whole it's it's a whole different job, which is it's already a hard job being a parent, and then being and with these kids like that are just glued to their phones and and kind of missing a lot of what goes on around them. I mean, I, I'm basing this on when I grew up. We were just out there. We were riding bikes around. We were, you know, going to Rock Creek Park and you know 
shoplifting and doing, you know, healthy things. But, you know, we were just like, we were just out there. Uh, there just wasn't anything like that. And it, I've, it just talking to kids now, like my nieces and nephews and all the stuff they're exposed to, they, they're, there's a, a, a kind of a disconnect and they become, they can become young adults really quickly in some ways. Like they mature because of their uh, being expo- exposed to all this stuff. They mature so much having seen so much, but in the context of how they've seen it, which is online and not out there in the world, they're also kind of embryonic, you know, it, 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 more so it's a weird dichotomy of kids now that when we were kids, we were kind of kids and then we became adults, but they have this kind of gestation point where they're, they're little adults in some ways, but they're really undeveloped in other ways, socially and, and stuff like that. And to be a parent and have to navigate all that is, I, I can't, I just can't imagine, you know, I mean, it takes me when I sit down with my nieces and nephews to talk to them, it's, it's like I'm on another planet for a while. And then we kind of like, you know, we, then we kind of like see eye to eye a little bit and we're communicating. But there's a there's a definite uh, getting used to period of, of wow, they're just on a, you know, and they can do lots of stuff. I have no idea how to do with, you know, on, you know, technology and everything. But you really have to keep Oh, do it. they take the phone from you and they go... <laughs> Come on, Uncle DC. No. And then they and then they change the whole thing. They change your fonts. They change your screensaver. And you're like, oh, wow. How do I get that off of there? Right. But it is it is fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's um, you know, I guess it's like when uh, when I was growing up or when we were growing up or whatever, there was like, you know, old people would be like, why? You know, I walked to school in the snow for an hour every day or whatever it was. We kind of laugh at that. And now the stuff that they laugh at about us and and I'm probably the, the oldest one here I'm thinking but the stuff that they laugh at, I mean I'm, I'm like wow it really I'm really uh, I'm really a caveman in a lot of ways like to these kids so it's not to go off on a tangent with this but it, it does fascinate me when I hear my friends with kids and how they deal with them and they're just a whole a whole set of problems I don't know if I would be equipped to deal with uh, as a parent, you really got to be multi, you got to be a Renaissance person, you know, on so many levels. You know, it, it's interesting. It is a whole different world where like, I, I grew up like you were, you know, our summers I'm leaving my house with a bike in the morning and I come back, you know, at, you know, when I'm hungry or right, like I come back at night and my parents have no idea where I am all day, what I'm getting up to. I think I'd be horrified to learn that my kids were getting into things I was getting into at their age. Right. But like they are kids who I've never not known where they are, that there is GP, you know what I'm saying? That there is GPS on their, on their red light. They've never been my, my oldest, when he went to high school, the first time he like, he had never been anywhere without an adult super supervision. And as he's going to high school, I was like, man, I got to teach you how to walk by yourself and like know how to follow the GPS on your phone. And even then, like he has a phone, I can reach him at any point in time, but it was a, it was like an intentional, you need to know how to be outside by yourself. Cause right. Like I want you to be able to hang out and not feel like you need a ride everywhere. Right. Um, it is a, it is a whole different world. I think I learned, but, but, but I think that it's healthy to not think that we can control everything. I, and, and I learned this, this is funny. I was, um, 
I taught like a summer program when I was in grad school at Chicago Public Schools. And in Chicago Public Schools, the computers, you're not allowed to go to YouTube. You can't go to any social media sites. It's like they have all these things blocked. And so even for us, the adults in the room who are teaching these programs, we can't go to any of those sites. So it's kind of like even on a break, you can't use the computers to do anything interesting. You can't use the Wi-Fi in the building for anything interesting. And then I've noticed that the kids were still getting to YouTube. (laughs) The kids were still getting to these video game sites. And I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, what? And I'm talking to the kids. These are fourth grade kids who have never taken a computer science class, but they figured out how to use VPN and mirrored sites to bounce their connection off of several things to get to the site that they wanted. And I'm like, man, can you teach me how to do this? Right. And so, like, these are these are kids in an under-resourced school who figured out how to use technology in ways that allow them to get to, to what, you know, where they want to be. And I assume that my kids have the same capability. And so I'm not going to try and put, you know, blocks in their way to force them to do what I want them to do all the time. I just want them to be honest with me about what they do. I want them to, to, to tell me about what they do. And that, you know, and that for me, it's a little bit more lax. And I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to get back to the, to the days of letting them just be, you know, gone all the time with no phone with them. Um, but then I, right. I do, I do want to take a note from the prior generations of trusting, you know, trusting that kids are resilient, trusting that, that, you know, when you're in a good relationship with your kids, they're going to make good decisions and, you know, and being there, you know, just kind of doing life with them regardless of, of the decisions that they make. Nice. Now we look, now we're seeing, speaking of kids and decisions, uh, Twitch streamer, Kai Sanat SNA charged with inciting a riot after a chaotic giveaway in Union Square after a massive gathering of people showed up. This happened this Friday, this past Friday. We're recording the Monday after it happened on and um, it happened at Union Square, in New York City for a social media influencers giveaway hosted by two influencers there. And there have been 65 arrests including 30 juveniles, several civilians, and teenagers hospitalized. The influencers intended to give away PS5s and $100 gift cards, but it quickly evolved to chaos before the event even started. It started like around 3 p.m. The NYPD Chief of Department, Jeffrey Madry, who we were seeing constantly on TV talking about, like, I, 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 you know, the comic in me was laughing at some of, the way he was talking because there was he was like the kids are taking food from people who are just eating outside dining and i'm like who's outside dining watching this chaos like go inside um so <laughs> there was a part of me was like if you're sitting out there and you're eating food and just watching this a part of me was like you kind of deserve your your plate being tossed but um it just, it turned, it, you know, you're, I'm in Harlem. I live in Harlem, New York. So you turn on the news and you see all this chaos and you're thinking, oh my God, this looks like January 6th. How is this any different? And this is where social media has gone. This is what it can do. When you saw this, what did you, um, what did you think, Rob, when you saw this? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was sad to not think it was January 6th. The January 6th was white supremacists trying to stop uh, the presidency from, right? Like, they're, right, they're literally trying to break in and stop um, the vote 
from ratifying our, you know, from, from our, our vote, which is, that's a crazy, that's a crazy situation that, that could have changed, um, you know, could have ended democracy in the U.S., right? That's a little bit different than kids wanting some video games from someone who, who they follow online. Um, so I, right, so I, I, I see that as big, right? There are different types of, of riots, if you will, right? So a bunch of people crowded into a space trying to, trying to see someone that they, that they, um, have followed for years is a little bit different from like a targeted, you know, revolt. Um, but then, right. I think what I saw, what, what I see there what, is that these, you know, internet stars are the new celebrities that my kids don't want to be professional athletes. They want to be streamers. And I read that the, the, the youth nowadays is like, they, like, do you have some youth who want to be LeBron? Yes. But I think that, that, um, it's not now everyone wants to be like Mike. Everyone wants to be LeBron is that people want to be Mr. Beast who's doing these giveaways. And right. A lot of these YouTubers, like part of what they do is they'll show up to a place and they'll have a giveaway and the giveaways are like a part of what builds their brand. And I think Mr. Beast is it right. Uh, um, I'm just bringing him up because I know he's talked about when people pay him to do like when an advertiser pays him to make a video, he spends all of that money making the video or giving that money away. Um, and then like he makes his money off of the kind of the YouTube revenue on the, on the back end. So it's like creating these public uh, situations of gifting people randomly is building their brand. It's making them more popular is making them more money. Um, oh, so this, so- uh, this is something that is regularly done. This giveaway from influencers. Um, I don't know that it's done in the exact same way, but okay. I think that yes, like influencer giveaways are very normal. Like you'll have people, there'll be videos of like, you offer someone a hundred bucks and you ask them, do you want this hundred bucks or do you want me to double it and give it to the next person I see? And they'll keep doing it until someone's finally like, oh yeah, I'll take this thousand dollars instead of giving $2,000 to the next person. And right like that, now that's a video or they spend a couple thousand dollars, but then they're making more money than that by, you know, kind of gaining celebrity. So I think, yeah, giveaways are a big part of, of kind of this, um, you know, kind of Twitch or YouTube influencer, um, you know, business. Yeah, I guess, you know what, the reason I, I also put this article in and kind of, I guess, compare it to January 6th, not really, but because it's a it's it does feel like mob you know mentality or mob situation where you have like a bunch of people rushing and it's not controlled and then i think about how this was an influencer who's trying to do something like a giveaway what if it's someone who is like a trumper who has the same intent this was like the dry run for this for new york city because, you know, I, I'm just like part of me just realizes, thank God those were just kids who wanted a PlayStation. What if it was something that was like, whoa, I'm going to be in Union Square and I and I want, you know, like no one was prepared for that situation is what I saw. Mm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's real. I think, you know, it, it's uh, something that's disturbing that we've seen is that when folks on the far right have chosen to have, um, you know, incidents or, 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 you know, events like this, a lot of times we see that police are protecting them. And so when it's like, when it's black youth, when it's, you know, someone associated with the movement for black lives, then we have, uh, we seem to see patterns of folks getting arrested uh, um, all willy nilly. Whereas when it's coming from the right, we have police who are protecting them from counter from counter protesters. 
Um, so I think they're right. I, 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 I do think that, but, but the, the point that you're bringing up of we're not necessarily equipped to respond to large groups, um, you know, that, that, that may be true, but I do think there's a big distinction between a large group of kids trying to have fun on the summer vacation versus a group of, you know, white supremacists who are engaging in domestic terrorism. Um, right, that, that I see those as being kind of uh, separate. So this may be more akin to whenever a, a sports team wins the championship, the fans go a little bit crazy in the streets. And that's something that is less political um, and more about just a, a bunch of excited people in the same place. Um, I, you know, I guess on the, with those events, there's more alcohol involved, there's more adults, it's nighttime versus these are kids during the day. Um, so both can be, you know, a little bit, a little bit worrisome for, for people to, to see, you know, kind of disorder, but then there's disorder coming from different places. And then you have, right, to be honest, you have the police responding differently, um, you know, based on what the, 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 you know, the people there look like. And plus Trump is not being charged. And this kid, this influencer was charged immediately. That's, that's all that I was like, there's some unfairness here. It's um, crazy how that escalated like that. And it does make you aware that, you know, these things just happen, you know, uh, separate from January 6th, which was very planned and, and all that. But these things, uh, again, just happen. It's like a, now different things set them off. You know, it used to be like riots. If, or it feels like it, or if it, if you even want to call that a riot, it, that it, there was something attached to it. There was something maybe important or big event attached to it. But maybe, yeah, maybe it is just like this new celebrity thing, the way people go crazy over celebrities. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of kids with a lot of energy and, and it's just, and it's just unfortunate. I'm, I remember growing up in, DC, like New Year's Eve, it was there was it was dangerous. You it was dangerous to go out on New Year's Eve at times. The stuff would just pop off for no reason. There was no influencer or no anything, but it was just you know cumulative like violence. You know would just happen, and it, it, you know it is unfortunate. You look at some of that footage and you see like these like these guys who were in the magazine stalls getting beaten up and their stuff taken and then. It, it, it's and and the other unfortunate thing is what I hate to see is when somebody sees that and they think that's what New York is. That that to me is like like when somebody who's never been to New York City sees that and they think this is you know kind of a regular occurrence every day of life in New York City that just this kind of stuff goes on all the time and it is you know these there are specific events and there's a lot more to it than that but. That is why I kind of retract a bit from watching a lot of the news because it's just, it's so, so much, uh, uh, there's, I mean, it, it may sound hacky to say, but there's so much disinformation and so much perception melding of what a place that you've never been to is. This is a facet of this place, you know, and this is kids, teenage kids getting wild. It, ha it, it does happen. It's really unfortunate. And it's unfortunate that the world sees this, but there's just, there, there's so, it's, it's so much more. 
I don't know. It's it's uh, it's touchy, you know, that like to see that can be that that's representative of of that city in a lot of people's eyes. It's unfortunate. I think it could be also what this generation is going through as far as like I always bring up the pandemic in 2020 and how I watch my nieces like socialization wise and getting out the house. I feel like that image of those kids is sort of like a result of the pandemic too. Like it's the way they come out is different. The way they are outside is different. The way they respond to social media is different. And when I saw that, I was like, there's a lot of, of rage there that's coming from the pandemic that we haven't dealt with. You can listen to teachers talk about the children are just different. You talk to parents. Uh, I talked to one woman who said she just can't even get her daughter to come out of her room sometimes out of her bedroom because they a lot of them spent time in these like closed spaces. We haven't dealt with it. When we've just tried to move on, we're like, the pandemic is over, move on. Politically, no one wants to talk about it because it's like, it's not a good point to talk about. Everyone wants to move on. But that moving on thing is not working for our children. It's not. And I and I felt like seeing that in Union Square was like also the results of not dealing with our youth and what well, happened. There is- there is kind of there is that aspect and there is an aspect of there's it's kind of like a chef salad of no home training as well it's like you know like with you know there with at least a, a portion of people there you would hope that you that you would learn not to do that and not to get caught up in that like somebody should instill that in you to to, to you know there are there were people trying to break stuff up and trying to stop thing young people you know but it's like when that kind of mob mentality takes over is where was somebody back whenever saying don't do this kind of stuff like you know i mean does that sound idealistic or what do you guys think about that does that sound like realistic what i'm saying well rob's the only parent <laughs> right, <I> know. <laughs> i'm gonna let him go <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, you know what? So I remember I would take my kids that we when they were young, we, I had a membership at the uh, a museum in the neighborhood. And there's like a kids play area with all kind of balls and, you know, toys and stuff that they can play with. And I used to see like I would ha- try to have my kids very well behaved. We were in a museum. This is a public place. I want them to be well behaved. And then I would see white kids crawling all up on everything, every right, doing breaking every rule, doing what they wanted to do. And I would see black parents who are like making sure that their kids are acting right in public. And I do like I was talking with one of my professors about this outing who she was a white woman. And she said, oh, yeah, my kids used to go there every day with the babysitter after school. And they just felt like they owned the place. And it made me realize like, man, these white kids feel like they own this museum. I'm a member, too. I want my kids to feel like they own the museum. And I stopped policing their behavior so hard. And for me, it was more like, no, like, but, you know, okay, this is the norm. I want to allow them to play as hard as they want to play in this space where, you know, 
right? White folks are also letting their kids play hard in this space. And I think that sometimes for black folks, that there's an element of safety for us of like, we need to make sure that our kids act a certain way when they're in public. And I think that that was a moment for me of allowing kind of my perceived need to have my kids be seen as being well-behaved. I allow that to take the backdrop and more just, I allow them to explore the space to develop intellectually as they're trying to fit the right pieces into you, you you know what i'm saying and so i think that 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 i am in a little bit intentional about not just thinking about raising kids as being raising well-behaved kids i want to i want to raise kids who are concerned for the well-being of others who are not selfish but i also want them to be free and to to not feel like obedience is the only way right like right i like i want them to be kind of uh, intellectually uh, independent um so I say it to say that like when we look at things like this and say, oh, how are these kids being parented? Um, I, I wonder if we look at where are white youth gathering like this and are they right? And I think that sometimes that, that rhetoric comes when we look at what black kids are doing. Um, but right, if you go to a like a, you know, I don't know what, you know, maybe a Taylor Swift concert or something, right? Like, right, are you going to find white kids who are also going crazy? If you go to a rave or or Coachella, are you going to find other instances where there's a social setting where going crazy and being excited is more socially acceptable? And it, it seems to me that this would be an incident that is less about the parenting of those kids and more about the context where they weren't in the safe space of a concert where this grass is meant for you to go crazy. And this is where you're meant to have a mosh pit. But they were just they were in public because this is the influencer who did not have a concert where you had to buy tickets to go in and see this your celebrity. There were no lines. There were no guards. Right. Like, right. There's no there was no structure to this. To, to this event. And it was more like there's a thousand people in a space that could only fit 300. And so that this is what happens. So like, right. So, so I see this as being less about the culture and the parenting of those kids and more about the setting where if this influencer had set up a situation of like, Hey, get your free ticket online, check in here. Here's the line. Here's where we gather. Then you're going to have a different behavior than you would when it's just like, show up to Union Square and there's too many people, you're packed in, people are getting put right. And so I see there's been more about the structure of the of the event and less about the culture and the parenting of those kids. Um but there were, I think I think for me, I like I'm 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 intentional about not trying to explain things by cultural or, or parenting differences because I often find that the same behaviors are policed differently when white folks do it, when people with money do it, versus when poor folks, when black and brown folks do it. I think you're. I think yeah, absolutely. I don't. I don't assign a cultural thing to that. I just feel like it's age group wise. Hopefully, there's some notion that this is not right to to do this. And I think you like you said, it's Taylor Swift concert. I mean, I remember being. Uh, uh, Marina knows Ben Bailey. Uh, we were in uh, Amsterdam uh, after a soccer game, and there were these guys in these Dr. Seuss cat in the hat things turning over cars, lighting oh, stuff on yeah. fire. Just like it was like a war. You know what I mean? So for me, I don't, I don't look at it culturally. I just think like it, it's. It, you just hope that at such a young age. That when when you do get into a situation where there's just no there's no bound you're you're smushed like you said smushed into the space there's no boundaries there's like some kind of the the, the police look kind of elderly that were there 
or were unequipped to deal with it. It was like <laughs> they were unnumbered. They it were was like supermarket sure. security guards. That's what it kind of looked like. And I, you know, yeah. um, that uh, you just hope that there's some, I don't know, some compass that says like that it's where where there's a resistance to getting caught up in that. And maybe that's not realistic. Maybe that's just part of being young and just try and like this is the new type of opportunity that sets things off that it's it's an influencer instead of like whatever it was johnny depp at can film festival stepping out and the paparazzi go crazy and you know it just seems like gosh it's it, 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 over over really what could be perceived as nothing this thing just you know popped off it's out, out of nothing so it's such a big way i could i couldn't believe how many people were there and how how it just spiraled how fast yeah you know so i but i I see what you're uh i see what you're saying i do think there's definitely two sets of rules there's definitely two sets of rules with you got to be a lot more cautious with um kids that may be perceived to have have money or or come from you know or just me you know you could blanketly say white kids versus brown kids there's going to be two sets of rules for sure but whoever, whatever color they are, they shouldn't be doing that shit. <laughs> you know, that's it. They shouldn't be doing it. You know, yeah. so yeah. What, what was your? As my grandma would say, what was your ass doing out there anyway? Um, but <laughs> she's from Southside, King Drive, uh, South Vernon. So we're we're doing pretty good. Um, I have a couple articles, but I just want to ask you, Rob, like about your book is there any aspect of your book that we haven't covered today that you would like to mention yeah yeah I, so i would say um i think I, like i may have mentioned briefly that when the hood comes off part one is about the ways that you know racism has been hiding since the classic civil rights movement and the ways that, that we can understand racism to be more subtle and how online communication changes that dynamic and part two is about resistance and so as we as we talk about some of the ugliness of racism online. Um, I write, I like, uh, you know, the, the, the most fun I had writing the book is when I'm, um, talking about ways that, that, you know, black folks and folks of color are challenging racism. Um, and so, right. For example, in person, the most common response to a racial microaggression, which is kind of a subtle expression of racism is to not respond. And that we typically do not say anything in these situations. We experience this, you know, microaggressions in silence, they have a negative impact on our health over the long term, the re- research finds. But, right, we're scared to talk back. We don't want people to think that we're too militant. We, we weren't sure that this is about race. Um, you know, we're scared of, of, of the consequences. We don't have the time to respond because it's something that happens quickly. But online, all these dynamics change and, and, and folks are more likely to, you know, to challenge racist narratives. And so, um, right, so for example, if you go look at a news um, you know, article about this event. And if there's someone who says, oh, these black kids are out of control, there's going to be someone else who challenges that comment and says, no, that's racist. This is why this is not about race. And this is about, you know, you know, for example, because kind of the answer I was given, let's look at the structure versus the race of the kids. And let's think about this in a more complex way. And I think that that's something that happens online, not just in the big, you know, Twitter hashtag moments, but then also um, and in and, and, and everyday discourse. And so that's something that I do. And when the hood comes off um, is, is really explore what does resistance look like? How has online communication given us more tools or we can challenge racism and really challenge the narratives that, that keep getting repeated and, and, you know, keep racist ideas alive? And what are those tools? 
what's like a few of them that so an ex- yeah yeah so an ex- i mean so i really when i say tools i'm thinking about things like social media and so how is that a tool for resistance is that when you you know when you see someone say something racist instead of having to think of a response in that moment you can take your time you can Calm your emotions. Think about what it is you want to write. Maybe find an article you want to reference. And now you're responding to a post um, several hours later instead of having to respond um, in that moment. Um, Instead of feeling right, instead of being (laughs) the only person of color in a meeting as you experience this microaggression, when you post about it online, now you're in a community of support of people who are like, like, right, if you say, hey, was this racist? This is what my boss said to me today. And then your friends get to say, yeah, that was racist. And right, like, here's why it was racist. And now you feel more confident in your understanding of the situation that it wasn't about you making a mistake, a shortcoming in your work. It was, I know this was about race and I'm uncomfortable with it. And now I'm going to plan how to respond next time something like that comes up. And so I think it allows, right? So as a tool, it allows people to engage in collective resistance against racism across geographic boundaries, right? Across time. That is, they, these aren't situations that happen in a moment where if you don't respond right away, you can't respond. Um, and, and, and really, right, it, it takes away this power dynamic of Black folk, folks of color feeling silenced, feeling like they don't have the voice to speak out when it happens in person, right? That they're right there at risk of, of experiencing racial violence when it happens in person. But online, they feel more empowered. There's a community who's responding and they, they feel like they have the voice, that their voice can be amplified and challenging what, you know, the, the, all the different ways that we are continuing to experience racism. You're reminding me of the George Floyd moment when we were all inside, we couldn't look away. And all of a sudden, all my white friends were calling me and saying, is this real? Does this always happen to you? Are you experiencing this? And it was only because they were forced to see it as opposed to now where you could kind of look away because you could go outside, you don't have to really focus on it. I feel like that was a as as awful as that moment was, it was a good moment of everyone seeing it, their eyes were on it, you couldn't look away. Now I'm seeing we're going sort of back where people don't want to look like DC said, and I'm the same way. Sometimes I can't look at the news, but I have to because I do the podcast. But I do find that tendency is like, I just, I just don't want to see it anymore. I just, I feel like as much as that moment was like eye opening for white Americans, I feel like they've also shut the door for that brief moment and not realize that as black Americans, we can't look away. It's always there. It's always that moment. And you brought up something interesting about like how we behave and how we show our children how to behave of color, the freedom to be like, I find myself physically in spaces sometimes behaving a certain way because I don't want to upset white people. I had told this story years ago that on a plane, a woman perceived me as shoving past her as I was getting on the plane. I had priority. And I know a lot of black comedians who go through this where they got the priority booking on a plane. They're getting on the plane first, but someone looks at them like, who you? Why are you getting on this plane before me? Why are you in first? I don't believe you're in first class, you know? So this woman like made a big uproar. She was like, I'm going to speak to the pilot because she perceived me. And (laughs) here's the crazy part. I was sitting in her row right next to her, of course. I mean, it was like all types of level of like perfect situation. Should have captured it on camera. 
Because I remember at the moment, my body, my reaction was not what I thought it would be. You know, normally you think, oh, I'm going to be like this badass and I'm going to challenge this white woman and I'm going to make some noise. I was nervous. I was physically shaking to the point where I even like moved myself to another row. I asked this woman, I said, can I switch seats with her with you because she doesn't like me? And the woman was like, well, I like you. You can sit next to me. That's fine. But I accommodated her. And then on top of that, the stewardess, who was black, she accommodated her as well. When I told her what happened, I told her, I said, this woman, she she doesn't like me. She's making this uproar. She's calling the pilot. She wants to get me kicked off the plane. And the stewardess was like, well, is it solved now? And just let it go. And then I remember a guy walking by and he goes, are you Marina Franklin? I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> I was like, see, I am somebody. But that whole moment, and I remember, I still think about that moment to this day and how I never received like justice for that moment. I just was quiet, let it happen, got off the plane. I was still shaking when I got off the plane. I was going from New York to Arizona mm -hmm. and still feeling that. And anyway, yeah, I thought I'd share that. No, that's heavy. Uh, that's heavy. And I think that that is something that we we experience that type of racism, you don't say anything and it's like you wish that you had said something and it's almost like, right, like you're beating yourself up for not standing up in that moment, but it's so difficult. It's unsafe that, right, black women, you are, are, are often, right, that you have the stereotype of an angry black woman, that if you stand up for yourself, you may have the, now you have people saying, okay, ma'am, you do need to calm down before we get you off the plane. There are all these things for you to, to think about of like, uh, of the, right, that you have experienced an injustice and that saying something instead of it fixing the problem because of racism, because of sexism, could lead to you having additional problems. So you stay silent. And I think that is the power of, of online resistance is that we are able to dissect and, and analyze and highlight all of the different ways that, you know, intersectional oppression is keeping us from, you know, from, from you know, living in a way that, 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 that where we don't experience that, that type of discomfort. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a story that a young black woman told me about, like there was a, a white, a white man who, um, was saying, um, that he would miss Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill when there was this news that Harriet Tubman was going to replace him. Right. And then, you know, people are, you know, responding saying like, oh, did you know Andrew Jackson is responsible for genocide, this and that. Um, and then this black woman made a comment that shamed this right this 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 white guy and when she was talking to me about this comment she's like you know what i don't even remember what the comment was but it was gold and people were laughing at it a bunch of people liked my post and i felt so supported by knowing that so many people supported my challenging this guy who's saying that he was upset that this genocide andrew ja right this person responsible for genocide andrew jackson was going to be replaced by this hero harriet tubman and so for me, right, this is an example that illustrates this is a shift in power. Instead of being the black woman who is silenced and is scared to say anything, she's now the black woman who started a conversation and had people, so many people had her back that she realized that her perspective was not unique and that, right, that, that it was something that, that was validated. And I think that that is the, right, that it is part of what social media um, allows us to do. Um, in chapter six of the book, I introduce a, a concept called double-sided consciousness and, and, and this idea, right? I, like, I, I explore the way black Twitter uses the term why people, um, which is kind of a creative spelling for white people to externalize white behaviors and prejudice that do us harm in a safe place online, but in a public place that is visible both to the black community and kind of the broader Twitter sphere and in the naming 
what oppressive behaviors look like. It is kind of this this emotional release of feeling, right? Like this is something that is attacking us and now we're going to put it out in the world and collectively we're venting about this problem and, and externalizing where, right, where the, the, the problem is with white supremacy. The problem is not with, with us as victims of white supremacy or targets. Yeah, just having that empathy in um, which we did not have years ago. You're right. That's where the internet does come in. Yeah. That moment. I should have recorded that. that would have been a, Sorry. That would have been a long, <laughs> awkward ride to be in that road, too. I was just thinking of that. You know, the two of you in the same row. That would have been a long, awkward. Uh, uh, and her daughter uh, was sitting there and her daughter felt uh, was like so embarrassed. And I looked at her daughter and I said, is your mom? Is she does she not like black? You know, and I and I was like, do I talk to her daughter like this? And her daughter was like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. Like her daughter was so embarrassed because her daughter was seeing me as a person. And the mother was just like out of control. But I remember I was like, I still have a chance here to save this young white girl by you showing her <laughs> that I'm not the I'm not the one. Yeah. Your mom is the one. We can leave it there. But I want to say to you, DC, you know, I am so glad that you are putting your special up on YouTube and that you have it up there because it gives me hope because, you know, like we were talking about how Netflix sort of like, you know, everyone always says and to all of our listeners, stop saying to comedians, when are you going to do your Netflix special? Stop it. Because Netflix is not the be all end all. And as I've been telling everyone, like something I've learned as I've gotten older in the scene is that the ones that you see at the top are not always the ones, most of them are good, but some of them have been pushed by an industry. So look at the ones on YouTube that have not been pushed by the industry. Those are the ones that are really in it for the grind, for the long haul, for the heart. Trust me, not all of them, but most and DC is definitely one of those comedians. So definitely check him out because I love this conversation that went on in the LA Times by Sanaya Kelly. She's talking about um, Lunell, who has been a comedian who's been out here forever, who is getting like, she goes, I landed my special with Netflix under the umbrella of Dave Chappelle. That's the only way as a roster of other comics. She goes, I know my situation is different from a lot of people, but I think it's my relationship that got me in the door. So she's talking about your relationships. I think Rife, Matt Rife is the one that is, I don't know, DC, have you heard yeah, of this guy? Yeah, this Matt guy, Rife? well, everybody's been talking about him for the last, what is it, like month now. And I looked him up and I'm like, oh, I think I saw him somewhere, but he's doing it, he's doing it himself. You know, he's, he got a big following and, and there is... The, the thing about that people don't realize about this industry is that funny matters the least. It, and it, what, you and I did not know this getting into it. We thought if you're funny, you organically, your work will speak for itself and you will rise to the top. But it matters the absolute least in this industry. And it, and it, and there, it is a, it's a lot about relationships. It's a lot about getting somebody to open a door uh, you know, like what happened with Lunell was like, she's been kicking around forever. She's been a headliner for forever. And she, I think she mentioned that it was Chappelle who finally, you know, put her on. Um, but there are many, many, many of us out there who just don't have the in. And I, I remember, I remember coming up, this is a, a classic example of, uh, 
there was somebody who worked at Comedy Central. Okay, I don't mean to keep breaking them up, but that you know, it's sort of quintessential to this to this dilemma uh, that uh, wanted to do comedy, and they were doing some, and they became an assistant uh, to the development of shows. Uh, but this is somebody who was basically an open micer working at Comedy Central, using those connections to eventually get an HBO special and and to and somebody that when I had a TV show pilot idea that I shot, I had to go pitch to this person. You know, they were the sort of uh, gatekeeper before you got to the main kind of uh, decision maker. And their whole thing is is coming in from another angle developing relationships to have their own stand-up comedy career, you know, and that's what you're competing with. You're competing with people with these relationships that may not have this, the skills that we hone in comedy clubs night after night, after night, after night, uh, something that's kind of caused me to pull back a bit and find alternate streams of income. So I can do comedy again, cause I love it, you know, and I'll put it out there and whoever sees it, sees it, but, uh, but being dependent on it, comes with a whole other set of circumstances that can really, and I don't want to sound gloom and doomy, but it can really cast a dark cloud on your overall life, you know, that you're trying to compete on a field that's not a level playing field. There's so much nepotism. There's so much, um, it, you know, there's so much now that you're not even acknowledged if you don't have a massive social media following, you're not developing one. I mean, that's become the, the key component. In one way, it's wonderful because it, it keeps you, it, you're, you can compete with these networks and a lot of the gatekeepers, like we had talked about before. Now you can be your own entity and, and compete with those guys. But on the other hand, it's becoming a lot about marketing and less about, you know, you would hope that it would be about being funny. And, and being uh, and having a point of view and saying something unique and being discovered that way, just being good at the craft. But it very rarely is about that. And <laughs> I'm sorry if this sounded like a vent. And negative, no, it's but, true. It's know, like it, the craft is lost, is a lost art form stand up in its, I think, you know, like to get it into a minute clip uh, is not the real craft of comedy the craft it really comes within the hour but then they put out so many hours that weren't that good so now people like are you know would prefer to just see a quick quick fix and the public doesn't see what goes on yeah. behind the scenes you know it's it's all like that movie punchline where you go to the comedy club and everybody has their own little locker in the back room and there's this kind of fantasy depiction of what the life of a stand-up comic is <laughs> oh, man, and no. what the work is. Yeah, that's right. There, there was, was a locker. locker you know? <laughs> oh, there's no locker. There's a chair where we all pull our coats on. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> that's it, hilarious. it is, I wish that it, I wish that there was a way that the public can understand what this business is like and that there's so many, there's so many amazingly talented, young, older, whatever comedians of all age, size, color, gender that are out there that are developing and, and that what you see often, it, it's great. Those guys you, you, you talked about in the, in the articles have really, those guys have worked very hard. You know, they've worked very hard. They're, they're, you know, they've, they've put, they've put in the grind, but you and I know that we never had to compete when we were working on the road before uh, trying to, you know, working at these clubs, it was 
just headliners working at these clubs. Now you you get you have to compete with social media stars that really and this is been talked about, I'm sure, but that really don't have a stand-up act per se. They're just there being a celebrity and ultimately a comedy club is selling drinks and tickets and the comedy is just an afterthought, the quality of it or what it is, but it's really a restaurant. We're, we're selling drinks, we're selling tickets. That's where the bulk of the money, the food, you know, the nachos is where the money's at, not where the, la- you know, not the laughs. And that's the, that's the unfortunate part that uh, a lot of people don't understand when they're like, hey, why aren't you here at this club? Why don't sell that many nachos? You know, that's why, you know, so. Well, I was lucky to do your show in um, the Hamptons or no, the no sorry, Fork. the anti-Hamptons. Yeah, North Fork of <laughs> Long Island. Yes. Norfolk, yeah, it. and it was in a. It was so. They much love fun. you. They still talk about you. They still talk about you. You know, I mean, Marina came in and just, you know, just uh, wow, the effect you had on that audience. They just, yeah, really? it was, you know, and it's kind of an NPRish audience or whatever. But wow, I mean, the love was 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 there. They were know? great. It was it was a good feeling. It was also. When you talk about like the audience and there were no nachos, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like really like paying attention. I always say less is more, even in comedy clubs, the more they give is if there's food, if there's dinner, if there's like too much going on, everything, the comic like fades. But at your space, what was the name of the uh, space it's, again? It's the cast center in South Hole. And it was a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization that helps the uh, you know, it was an old church that converted into a, a performance space, community space. They got a grocery store downstairs where they give to the, they teach classes, they teach people uh, this education, there's clothing, there's whatever you need for the uh, underprivileged in the community. And then the show is just a mixture of people that come and that's all they get. They get a little glass of wine up front. Like, here, you can talk. Here's a glass of wine. And here's the show. You want dinner. There's restaurants to go to. And the beauty is there's not a lot of other stuff. There's not a lot of entertainment out here. So people are hungry for it. And they're hungry for quality, quality comedy. And so I've, I've, it was such a, 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 you know, a great thing to have you out here and, and talking about your experiences and your life. And people... This is old white ladies. This is everybody. This is whatever are still talking about you and how great you were, how funny you were. Yeah. Really? Uh, you oh, know, I mean, it was a, it's a range of different people, but it's like, you know, this wasn't Chicago. This was like this is this little agricultural area that, you know, out two out two hours outside New York City. We imported Marina and she she just uh, crushed it. She just crushed <laughs> it. They just love it. So, you know, it's it, it, it's oh, well, this is a it was great. Perfect spot to close (laughs) on the compliment. Thank you, DC. (laughs) Yes, I closed it. Uh, So I want to thank you both so much for joining me today on Friends Like Us. And I'll go to you, Rob, first. All right. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Rob Eshman, on Instagram at Rob.Eshman, RobEshman.com is my website. And with friends like us, we can find ways to continue to resist racism. Yes. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, DC. So I'm Real DC Benny on Instagram. Uh, DC Benny on YouTube. And uh, I think that's plenty. And then um, with friends like us, I know 
that if I'm ever trying to dock my boat and there's a pontoon boat that's in the way that won't move, I know that uh, uh, that Marina will get my back <laughs> and, 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 and swim over and help me come in like the Thundercats and uh, we'll be able to dock that boat because that's uh, Marina's joke that's is, right. is your name. Is, uh, that's a place where you dock a boat. So uh, it was great being on here. Thanks for having me on, uh, Marina. It was very nice to meet you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bob. Fantastic. Very, uh, yeah. Thank Good you so you much. With friends like us, you can learn better ways to have fun on social media that are constructive. Check, Check us, us out. out.